All right. Go ahead and be turning back to Matthew chapter 1. We started in Matthew last week. And we went through all of the genealogy of Jesus, which, which going in, some of you would have probably been like, eh, hopefully we got something out of that. I really, really enjoyed studying that last week. And I really enjoy the way we're going to get into the story of Jesus' birth today because like, we just got done with Christmas. And you're like, well, why don't you guys start this like at the end of December and you could have just done Jesus' birth story at Christmas. But the version that we're going to read today in Matthew, I think, is kind of... To me, it's unique. It's not the version that we tend to read. It focuses on different people. It focuses on the w- different af- ways that, that Christ's coming affected uh, the lives of his parents, which I think is a pretty unique way to kind of study this. Um, as I was thinking about this, I kept thinking to myself, the more that we think we're in control, or the more that we think we're going to come up with a really good plan for the next step, or the rest of our lives even, I tend to think the more God just kind of starts to snicker, right? Like, the more we're like, this is the way everything's going to work out, or I've got this under control, the more God's like, yeah, watch this. Uh, Example, example, again, me, uh, I think I was 16, and I'd been spending the night at my friend's house. It It was about this time of year. Hmm? But it was, about, it was around this time of year. I know because it was snowing. Now, I will tell you that it was a blizzard. It was more like a light flurry, like something that might keep your animated um, snowman alive in the summer. No? No frozen references? Okay. Sorry. I'm the one with the three-year-old. Okay. So, um, like, just a little bit of snow. It's like, and I'm on my way home. I've been spending the night, so I probably didn't have a lot of sleep. And I'm talking to mom on the phone. She's like, you really should get off the phone. It's not safe for you to be talking on the phone while you're driving. Like, mom, chill out. And then this famous like, I got this. I got it. And then she says, well, get off the phone anyways. Okay, but I got it. And I do this. Instead of doing this, hang up. Because this is back in the day when, when like, there was actually a button on our phone, right? You know, because I'm that old. But like, instead of just hanging up and setting the phone down and keeping my eyes on the road, I did this. I got this. See ya. And it only takes that long to uh, rapidly approach the car that has stopped in front of you and total your mom's van. Right? Right. Right. And then you call your mom back literally 15 seconds later and say, about that. About that got this. Can you come pick me up? Because I don't think this one's coming home. (laughs) The more we think we're in control, I honestly think God's just like, yeah, right. Watch this, right? I mean, think think about it. Like, the more we think we've got a plan, like, okay, I'm going to go to ETSU, and I'm going to be a digital media major. I'm going to graduate in four years, and then I'm going to go work at Pixar, right? Because that is what every single digital media major, with probably a couple of exceptions, things. I'm going to go get this degree, and it's going to be so awesome. I'm going to know how to do 3D graphics. I'm going to know how to do all this animating and, and all this stuff, and I'm going to go, go over to Pixar, and I'm going to be like, you'd be lucky 
lucky to have me. And they're going to be like, yeah, we'd be lucky to have you. Let us, let us shower you with gifts for, for offering your services to us, right? That's kind of the mindset that the digital media student has when they come in. And for some people, that will be true. For me, I took my first 3D class and I was like, oh man, I can't stand this. I have no patience for this. I don't want to sit here and work for an hour making this left ear look okay. Like, like that, that's not something that sounds all that exciting to me for the rest of my life. I don't want to sit here and try to make sure that the texture of the pores on this guy's cheek are, are up par. That's, that's just not what I'm going to be excited to do. And I really like where I live, and I don't really feel like having to move and have no money and really nowhere to live while I scratch and claw and try to get somebody to notice me, and maybe I can get in. You think you have a plan, and then God's like, you know what, you're going to graduate, and you're going to drive a delivery truck for Office Depot for like the first eight months of your married life, and it's going to be awesome, and I'm not going to lie, it was pretty awesome. <laughs> Something about getting to get in a truck and just drive all day, don't have to talk to people, just leave a box on a porch and walk away. God's like, see, you thought you knew what you wanted, but I'm gonna, I, want to, I, want you to, I want you to do this. I want you to do this other thing that maybe seems lesser, that maybe is going to make you say, well, I guess I'm not quite ready for this big job that I maybe had in mind for myself. Maybe, maybe I'm not quite prepared for that. Like we think a couple more examples of things that we think we can be in control of. You think you, think you know what your wedding's going to be like, and then your husband pulls, or your about-to-be-husband pulls out a guitar and starts singing, and you're like awkwardly standing there like, I don't know what to do with my hands right now. Right? You, you think you think you know after you get married it's going to be X amount of time. We're going to wait this long till we have a kid. You can ask my old Sunday school teacher, Justin Ferry, how that works. There's a really awesome story for that, but I can't tell it up here. You can tell me. You can ask me some other time, and I'll tell you the way that his whole life changed really quickly when he thought, oh, we're not going to have kids yet, and then it's like, oh, we're having a kid. Like, now, it's going to be a thing. Or maybe it's more like our situation where we were thinking, I think we're ready to have a kid, and then it's like, Hold up, you got to wait for a little while. The, the longer we hold on to this notion that, that the way things are going to work out is going to be exactly the way that we've envisioned, the more we're just kind of stifling our own growth. The more we think we're in charge, the more we think we're in control, the more we think that we have it all planned out, exactly how the next 10, 15 steps in our life are going to go, the more God is going to be like, I need to reveal to you that you are still small and that I am still in charge. For those of us who just got done reading through the whole Old Testament and studying the way God has kind of moved his people through history, we see that he's had his, his plan, not our plan, his plan this whole time that he's been working out. Uh, maybe despite the best efforts his creation, of his people, of, of the nation even that he called out. Uh, they keep thinking they know what would be the best way to handle each situation. And in each instance, God is like, not yet. You're not ready yet. You still don't, you still don't understand this yet. You're not 
fully accepting the fact that I'm in charge. And I think, I think we're going to see in the life of Mary and Joseph today when they get some pretty significant news that I hope we're able to realize that God works with maybe the people that we wouldn't expect in a way that we wouldn't expect and has expectations that sometimes would make us feel uncomfortable or put us in a position that we maybe would not have chosen were we actually in charge of our own lives. But hopefully by the end of this, we're going to see that, again, God is completely in control. God knows exactly how he wants all of the rest of history to play out because he's already written it. And I hope that we're able to kind of humbly approach him and say, I'm going to let go and I'm just going to let you move. I'm going to let you be in charge and I'm going to accept whatever it is that you put in front of me, whatever it is that you expect of me, I am willing to do. And I'm not going to try to outplan you. I'm not going to try to outthink God. I'm not going to try to say, I know better what's good for me than what God does. Let me try to fix what God's trying to do. Let me try to make it better for God because God doesn't really know what's best. So let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 18, and I'm going to go ahead and just read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll kind of come back and talk about it. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Okay. So what I really think is interesting about Matthew's telling of Jesus' birth story, because we're used to the the Luke chapter 2 version where he's like, in the days of Caesar Augustus, the decree went out, and we, and we focus so much on how humbly Jesus' entering into the world was. Right? We, focus, we focus on the actual mechanics that went about to bring Mary and Joseph to this place where Jesus could be born in this place, and we talk about how, how God made known that his son was here, and we, and we, and we really focus a lot on, on that aspect of the story. But sometimes I think, I know I do, because I don't read this version when it gets to Christmas times. Like, time to read the birth story, I don't go to Matthew. But here, we're not as much focusing on the birth of Jesus as much as the impact that Jesus being born to Joseph and Mary, the effect that that had on their lives and and the various things that were at play when they found out, oh, she's going to have a kid and we're not like Mary yet. And all of the different things that kind of go into making that happen. And 
but how that would have affected them. And I think that we can learn a little bit about the way that God works with us, the way that he calls people, and the way that we should be receptive to the way he calls by seeing how they reacted in these situations. Um, I say that, and I talk about so much about how I like Matthew's insight into this, but I am going to go ahead and turn real quick over to Luke chapter 1, just because I want us to get a little bit more detail into how Mary reacted to being told that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. So if you will go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 1 real quick, we're going to pick up in verse 46. Um, so Mary finds out from the angel, hey, you're going to have a son. And she goes and she talks to Elizabeth, and, which is one of her family members. She's telling her about all this. And Elizabeth's like, that's exciting news. The Messiah is coming. This is going to be really good for, for God's people. Uh, and we get to kind of see how Mary felt when she received this news. And she sings this song uh, in verse 46. Uh, I'll go ahead and read it. It says, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Keep that, that last sentence in mind. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has, and he, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So, so Mary gets this news, hey, you're going to have a baby. That baby's going to be the son of God. He's going to be the one who's going to redeem all of creation. All this time, God's been making promises. Hey, I'm going to redeem creation. Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to send, he's like, that's going to be your baby. The baby that is born from you. That is going to be him. And her response is this beautiful sense of humility and awe and wonder at the idea of, I am a humble girl. I am not, like, I am not, I am not much. Like, she's not royalty. She's not, she's not like the daughter of Pharaoh or whatever that we would, that we saw Moses being raised. It's not, like, like this, this means of salvation is coming to a poor girl who lives in a rural city, right? Like, she lives out in the country. It's like nothing particularly special, culturally speaking. And she's saying, the fact that God has called me to do this thing, people are going to think highly of me because God has, has so blessed me by choosing me to take on this task. And that's why I want to go back to that verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. She's saying, how amazing, how miraculous is it that God would use me. That God would put me in this situation. That God would say, I'm going to do something great, something earth-shattering with you. And I think sometimes we can, we can look at what, what God is calling us to. Maybe it's 
Maybe it's God is calling us to plant a church and we don't have a lot of people, we don't have a lot of, of finances, we don't have a lot of a plan. And he's saying, I'm going to use you to accomplish this task. And we may be thinking, I'm not worthy of getting to stand up here and preach. I'm not worthy of getting to stand up here and lead music. I'm not worthy to be able to do these things. This is not like, like why, would, why would you ask me to do that? And I think that's exactly the point. It's that, that God takes humble people. God takes people who, who don't claim to be able to accomplish things for God. Like, like he's taking people who are like, he's not, he's not asking the person who said, well, obviously I should be the one who should give birth to the Messiah. Like, I don't know how many people were raising their hand and saying that in society then. I mean, but those aren't the people he's picking. He's coming to Mary and he's saying, you, you're humble. You're, you're, not, you're not trying to say, look at me, I'm so amazing. I, he's saying, I'm going to take you and I want to use you. Um, and I think that that stands out because, because God's going to use the humble and the weak and those who aren't expecting, and I use that word with a double meaning, right? Like, he's going to use those who aren't expecting to be used in such a way, and he's going to say, I'm going to accomplish something great, because if he walked up to, you know, super athlete and says, I'm going to get you to accomplish this super athletic feat, then that person's going to be like, well, I was able to do that anyways, despite you. But if he walks up to me, and he says, I'm going to get you to accomplish some super athletic feat, if that happens, everybody's going to be like, that had to be Jesus. Thank you. Because I'm the one who went to Just Jump with the guys group a couple weeks ago. And I'm thinking, man, an hour? Is that going to be long enough? And it, like two minutes, I was like, is it over yet? I'm done. I'm tired. I'm out of shape. Like, like, I'm the person who walked on the treadmill for the first time. Walked. Listen to that word. Walked on the treadmill last week, and like the next day, my back was sore. Makes my dad real happy. I told him that, and he's like, yes. But like, but like, those are the types of people that God is going to accomplish something with because he's saying, I want to show what I am capable of doing despite your limitations, Right? What limitations did Mary have to having a kid? Well, she wasn't married yet. There was, no, there was no reason that she should be having a kid yet. We're going to talk about some of that in just a second. But, but what he's saying is, I'm going to accomplish something in you that could not be accomplished in any other way except that I did it. So, so when we are tasked with something... If you feel inadequate to accomplish the task, that may be the point. It may be that God is saying, I want to do something with you that you don't think you're capable of. And I think it's a healthy place for us to be to not feel worthy to accomplish the things that God's asking us to, because we're not. The only reason that we are able to accomplish the things that we're able to accomplish is through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And we should approach the things that God calls us to do with humility. It, like, like, in our weakness, he makes us strong, right? We, we, we say that, but, but do we actually mean it, or do we think that, well, I was able to do this because I'm actually pretty good at that? Or is it that you're pretty good at that because God made you that way?
So Mary, Mary finds out, hey, you're going to have a baby. And she's like, wow, God, that's amazing. You're doing this amazing thing with me. I'm so overwhelmed. And then she tells Joseph. And Joseph's like, whoa. Hold on. Because the way it says it, Uh, when, Mary had, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Spirit. She was found to be with child. So, so that's like, like Joseph's like, I had nothing to do with this. This isn't a good thing. And, and according to the law, like when it says that he was going to divorce her quietly, like he was trying to be noble. He was trying to be helpful. He's like, Okay, you have done this promiscuous thing, and instead of making a big deal out of it and maybe having you killed, maybe having you executed, which according to the law, he could justifiably do, he said, let's not make a big deal out of this. I will just quietly take care of this so that you don't have to be made little of, disgraced. I'm going to try to, he's like, I'm going to try to protect you from this because, because if this comes out that this is the situation, then, then either she's promiscuous and she should be looked down on or he had something to do with that and it's not going to look good for him. Right? He broke the law as well. Because, because the way that, and, and, it, and it uses the word divorce here, because the way that marriage worked, they didn't like date for a little while and then maybe break up for a little while and then date for a little while and then break up for a little while, and then date for a little while, and then get, get engaged for a little while, and then get married. This was more like, this sounds so bad, but it was more like a business arrangement. It's like, hey, you two are going to get married. And once you're betrothed, you are essentially considered married. Like, you are on the path to being married. Like, the wedding hasn't come yet. You're not, you're not like, for, there's not like signed paperwork, but, but according to your families, they see you now as married. So, so for her to be found to be pregnant would be to say that they were in this engagement period and she's done something she shouldn't have done. This is not, this is not good. And, and so that was why it was such a big deal that this was the case. It's not, it is not treated as flippantly as we treat it in our society today. Any sort of promiscuity where it's like, it is what it is. Or good for you. Right? They took this very, very seriously. And so for Joseph, he's faced with this situation where if I go ahead and marry this person in like a month and she has a baby in like five, that's not going to look good for me. Right? This is, and so, so he's protecting her. He's protecting himself. He's trying to protect their, their reputation a little bit. And, and the angel comes to him and says, dude, this is cool. She hasn't done anything wrong. In fact, she has found favor with God and God is going to work a miracle through her. And through the working out of that miracle, God's going to bring about redemption for the rest of the world. And so he says, don't, don't be afraid. Go ahead and marry her despite all of the problems that you may face for having to go through this. And this is the point that I kind of wanted to make when we look at how Joseph was going to be affected by this. Sometimes God calls us to be obedient in such a way that it might 
tarnish our reputation. We might be looked down upon by the people that we work with or the people that we're friends with or even our family. There have been people who have come to this church whose family have said, why do you go to that church? They act like a cult. It's been a while since we've heard the cult word thrown around about us, but it has been thrown. It's like, they like hang out together all the time. They're like trying to be more like family than we're like family, and I don't really think that's normal. And we're like, and, and the people have been like, but I'm looking in the Bible, and it says they're living life together. They're sharing everything. They have all things in common. They are like family. We are, we are made into a bigger family when we're added to the church. And, and maybe their family looked at them and said, I don't know, that's kind of weird. Maybe, maybe their family kind of thought less of their spirituality because they were willing to put themselves in a situation that just seemed a little bit different than what they were used to. It's not quite the same as saying that you're going to go be married to an adulteress, which is what it was going to look like for Joseph. But I think the idea is still there. I think the connection can still be made. Sometimes God is going to call you into a situation. Maybe it's to take a stand for the gospel at ETSU. Maybe it's to take a stand for the gospel wherever you work. Maybe it's to take a stand for the gospel with your family. Whatever that may look like, God may call you to be obedient in such a way that you're going to be looked down on by other people. People will think less of you. People will say mean things about you. People will make poor assumptions about you. But God says to Joseph, it's cool. In your, in your short-term suffering, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end suffering by virtue of what's going to happen here. So I need you to be obedient, and I need you to go and marry Mary and I need her to have this baby, and I need you to name him Jesus. Because he's going to save the world. We talked a little bit about Jesus' name last week, briefly. Yahweh saves. Israel had been naming their children this name, Jesus, uh, Joshua. They kind of have the same meaning for years. Yahweh saves in the hope that one day he would. And he's saying, now you're going to name your son this, because he is Yahweh, and He is going to save. He is going to be that Redeemer that you've been looking for for so long. It was time for God to actually fulfill the promise that He'd been making all along. And then it says, we go back over here to the verse, verse 23, or I'll start in verse 22. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this sentence, and then I'm not going to talk about this sentence for at least a week or two. So, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. We're going to see that phrase a lot throughout Matthew. It speaks directly into Matthew's kind of MO as to how, why he's writing this book. He's trying to connect all of this Old Testament prophecy to Jesus as the fulfillment. And we'll talk more about that as we work through this book. But, but this is what he's specifically trying to answer right here in verse 23. Behold... The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, here's the question. Because we talk a lot, maybe not as much when we're up here, but 
I know in guys group we've talked about these kinds of things a lot. We do in our community groups, that sort of thing. Like open-handed issues versus closed-handed issues. Like, like what are the things that we're, we're willing to have a little debate on? We don't have to necessarily agree on these things to still call ourselves Christians. We can all kind of still get together with a little differentiation on some of these things. And what are our closed-handed issues? What are the things that we absolutely cannot let go of? What are the things that we're not going to waver on? What are, the, what are the truths that we hold tightly to? And one of, the, one of the truths that some in the church would say is more of an open-handed issue is why was it so necessary that Jesus literally be born of a virgin, right? Why a virgin birth? Why do we need this? And, and there's a couple of reasons. I'm not going to lie. Um, I got on Desiring God and did a little reading from some other smart guys who are smarter than me. So I was a little bit helped by the Desiring God website a bit. I'm sure Ben will post a couple of links to these articles at some point this week because Ben's really good at doing that. Uh, but just to go ahead and read Luke, Luke's telling of this, um, when, he was, when the angel was speaking to Mary, he said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, and born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay, so he's saying... You are literally going to be a virgin. You are literally going to have a baby. We are not going to have a science class right now. But I can tell you that is not how this normally works. Are we all okay with that? Are we good? If you have any questions, talk to her. She'd be more than happy to show you some videos that she has teaching these sorts of things. Purely educational material. You may talk to her if you have any questions. I'm not getting into that. But what I can say is, it should not happen that a virgin should have a baby. So some people have tried to say, this is kind of metaphorical as trying to say that she was innocent or something like that. But, but physically, it's impossible. Exactly. It is impossible for that to happen. But it says that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to have a baby. Like, like God is going to make this happen. So, so is this an open-handed thing or is this a closed-handed thing? I like that fist. Not that fist. That Yeah, right there. Good. This is a thing that we cannot waver on because it, he just said specifically the prophet, and he's talking about Isaiah. I think it's, I, I didn't write down the reference, so I'm not going to lie. I think it's Isaiah chapter verse 714. I knew it was right around. I was going to say seven, but I wasn't confident. Man, lost points. But he says, because the prophet said this, God was going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. So the first thing is, do we believe God? Do we trust that God is serious when he says he's going to move in a certain way? Well, I kind of think, hopefully by the time that we've studied all of the Old Testament, we're moving into Matthew, we're going to start seeing how all of these things connect. God says this is going to happen, and what do you know? It happens just like he said it was going to be. Here's why it's so important and, and this is where I was really helped by doing a little bit of extra study. Here's why it's so important that Jesus be born in this way. First, because man could not be responsible for bringing about his own means of redemption. Right? If this was just a kid that two people had, they, they'd be like, oh, look, this, this baby that we have here that we made, this is ours. Look, this baby is the Redeemer. And God is saying, 
I'm the one who's bringing redemption. You're the one who broke this. I'm the one who's fixing this. So by saying, Joseph, y'all are going to have a baby and you're not involved, is to say, creation isn't bringing about its own salvation. Creation isn't providing its own redemption. God is providing redemption. Second, it showed God's initiative in bringing about salvation. It wasn't, like I said, Mary didn't step up and say, can I please have the Redeemer? It wasn't like Joseph said, can I I be the the father of the kid who's going to come and who's going to save all of us? God entered into their life. They were probably minding their own business that day, and they were probably a little startled when an angel showed up and said, this is going to happen. But it's God intervening in the lives of the people that he created specifically for this. He did not ask their permission for her to have a baby. He did not say, Mary, are you willing? There was no, Mary, if you will agree to this, this is going to happen. And I think sometimes we act as though God has offered us this choice. Hey, it would be really cool if you could do this thing for me. But what we keep seeing through the Bible is God doesn't give people options. He says, hey, Moses, you're going to go lead my people out of Egypt. And he's like, God, I don't know that I'm the guy. No, you're going to do it. God, I don't know. You're going to you go. This is how God works with his people. He calls them to a specific task that he has set apart just for them. He's not giving them options. He's not giving them choices. He's not giving them ways out. He's saying, I'm going to have you do this thing. He walks, he sends an angel to Mary who says, you're going to have a kid. He walks up, he sends the angel down to Joseph. You are going to be the father for this kid. You are still going to marry her and you are going to raise my son. So on all these occasions when we feel like God's given us this, hey, and, and, and I could preach it this way. I could be like, so God's going to call you to do something. Are you going to do it? No. God has set apart something specifically for each and every one of us. If you're part of the church, I could get real big picture and just say, he said, go make disciples and baptize them. We can focus on that. But, but I think even specifically, God is calling us all to be actively participating in the life of this church. For many of us, when I say this church, I mean like this church, physically, this building, this group of people, your community group that you go meet with throughout the week. There is something specific that God has said, you're going to do this. You can, and you can, you can kick and scream. You can say, I've got a better plan. You can say, I've got a better idea. Or you can say, well, I'm going to control when I start responding to that. I'm going to say it's going to be at this point. But I hope, I hope we're getting the idea that God has a very specific idea for us, a very specific plan, a very specific set of steps that he has kind of in our future. And there is no reason for us to bother resisting those things because God is ultimately in control. God is is sovereign over his creation and he's going to use his people however he sees fit. And once we can get past the idea that we are in control and we can stop saying, well, I'll do that if, or I'll do that when, or I'm just waiting on... When we can stop thinking that way and acting as though we have some form of control, as though we are in charge of anything, when we can get past that, 
that's when God's going to be bringing about redemption and restoration, reconciliation, all of these R words that I like to throw out. Right? That's when God is going to use us. That's when we're going to see the most effective use of our lives. One last reason why Jesus had to be born in the way that he was born. Because it means that he's alive like us, he's human like us, but he doesn't have the stain of sin like we do. You can turn to Romans chapter 5 if you would like. I'm going to start in verse 12, and I don't know how far I'm going to go. Maybe just a couple of verses. We'll see here. Here's why Jesus could not have a physical earthly father. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. who was a type of the one who was to come. But the, three, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. I'll just go ahead and stop right there. Because I could keep reading because it gets real good in that book from there. But... We have been born with a sinful nature thanks to our father Adam, is basically what he's saying. Sin entered the world through Adam, and, and as a result, everybody who's born after Adam is in sin just as he was. But by God, bypassing that, Jesus is able to be born fully God and fully man, not stained with a sinful nature, he is perfect. He is the only one who is actually able to bring about our salvation. Which was the whole point of his coming. He came to bring redemption for us. He came to die, to be the perfect sacrifice for us. And if he didn't come about in this way, if he didn't come to earth in that fashion... If he was just another dude, another guy born, just like the rest of us, he would have been born stained by sin in the same way. So God was very specific in the way that he wanted Christ to come. And he was very specific in, the in choosing the people that he wanted to do it. He wanted to pick someone humble. He wanted to pick someone who was willing to... Stay in a situation that might tarnish their reputation. And I feel like I've said this on a couple of different occasions lately, but it's just something that's been present in my mind, something that I've been thinking about. We, as the church, may find ourselves being associated with people that if we were not a part of the church, we would not want to be associated with. We might would be worried about how 
being connected with this person might tarnish my reputation. People might think less of me if I'm friendly with, insert person here, whoever that may be. And we might be tempted to say things like, I don't know that I want to be connected with that. I don't know that I want to be tied to that. But the guy that we follow, the guy that we believe in, was murdered for being a blasphemer. He was was executed as a criminal. He was offensive to the people that he came to save. And we're saying we're with him. We're with the guy that got killed. We're with with the guy that died because of his reputation. But he died in such a shameful way for us. He died in such a shameful way because he loves us. Because he wants to be with us. Because he doesn't want us to go through the rest of our lives still blinded by the idea that we're, we are in control of ourselves and we're on our own and everything that we do is about us. He, he, he took that shame and he died so that our eyes could be open to see who we really are. People that God is calling together to be a part of his plan, to accomplish something great for us specifically Right here, 417 West Market Street. So that we can see something accomplished by our being the church in this place. Even if people say, why would you go to a church that looks like that? Why, why, would, you, why would you go there? There's dust on things. The floor seems dirty. The toilets don't always flush. Why would you go to that church? Why, why would you, when, when there's all of these more cozy options, why, why would you throw yourself in in trying to meet the needs of people that we don't really want to be around? Why are you still tying yourself? Why are you still connecting yourself to people like that? And we say it's because we don't have a choice. God said, we want, I want you here and I want you doing this. And that's what I, where I want us all to be in this. We don't have a choice. We're here because God put us here and we're just going to be obedient. He's the one who's calling the shots here. I'm not in control. I have no say. There's nothing here for me to hold back and say, I'll do it when. So I'm praying this morning that we would just let go that we wouldn't continue to try to say, okay, like, like when I was a kid and like, and like my sister had already admitted that, that Santa's not real. And like, I'm like, I don't want to hear this. Seriously, like that was lunch that day. It's like, I don't want to know. Because once I know, then I'm responsible for getting presents for people. And it's not some <laughs> mythical guy. Right? Like, like I, I thought I was happier, and like my ignorance was bliss, right? Like, like you think that, but then once you know the truth of who you are 
in creation who the God is that made you and know that that God loves you and wants to do something amazing with you. It's humbling. It's terrifying. But, but more than anything, I think once we are in that place where we're like, you can have control, and that sounds hilarious, you can have it? Like, no. You are in control. Once we can say that, it's this most freeing feeling and this sense of calm and peace can come over you. It's like, he's got this. He's got this. I don't got this. He's got this. And he's going to do something amazing through me and through this church. So let's pray.